This is Kurt. I'm back. Okay, with record. Just in, um, you know, this forum, uh, you know, being involved and providing input into that as it goes yeah. forward. Okay. Gentlemen, yep. I'm back, and we are recording. Uh, this is the start. Uh, uh, it's uh, February 17th, 2005. This is the Ontolog Forum, and today uh, we have the pleasure uh, to have as our invited speaker, Dwayne Michael from Adobe Systems. Dwayne is the Senior Strategy and Analyst for Adobe Systems, and as a Senior uh, Standard Strategy, he's responsible for managing Adobe's participation in OASIS, UNC Fact, as well as ensuring Adobe's enterprise solutions supporting emerging XML standards. Uh, he currently serves as Vice Chair of the United Nations Center for Facilit Facilitation of Commerce and Trade, uh, usually known as UNCFACT, uh, and he has served as a project team lead for the e-business e architecture group. Uh, Joanne has been called Mr. SOA by his peers, and uh, he has spoken many times on this subject. So it's our pleasure to have him talk to us, and the title of his talk today is Sky Captain and the Service-Oriented Architecture Reference Model of Tomorrow. Uh, Just on a point of order, sorry, some, someone's got their, uh, mic their, their computer speaker very close to the microphone. It's, uh Making a lot of noise there. Yes, if if uh, people who are not uh, speaking, if you could uh, mute your phones, that would be appreciated. For those who can join us on the VNC session, uh, we will have synchronized slide advances. If not, uh, there's a link to uh, Dwayne's uh, PDF file where this slide deck is available, and you can download it and 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 uh, move forward. Uh, along with him. Dwayne, uh, we request that you uh, let us know every time you advance the slide and tell us uh, what slide number you are on. Okay, uh, without much ado, uh, all yours, Dwayne. Thank you. So, um, just advance quickly to uh, slide number two and uh, go over just the agenda today. There's really two sort of distinct uh, topics today. One is just an outline of the SOA reference model, uh, which I'm very interested in uh, also stimulating a discussion on, uh, you know, perhaps uh, some of the, the ontology work would be uh, useful within that context. And uh, then part two is really to more stimulate a discussion about what could be possible for tomorrow looking at, uh, you know, what ha what would happen if somebody waved a magic wand and everything people on the call were working on today was all of a sudden ubiquitous and, you know, what would we do with that or what could we do with that? And hopefully that will also stimulate a nice uh, discussion going forward. <coughs> so advancing to uh, slide number three, <coughs> I'll give you some history of the uh, service-oriented architecture reference model. Um, many of you know I've been involved with a lot of SOA work since 1998 and have participated or co-written large portions of uh, some of the, uh, the standards that are out there, uh, the architectural standards for uh, various
various uh, groups, uh, W3C Web Services Architecture I've participated in, uh, EBX and UNCFAT. The latest uh, work we started before this work was called the OASIS eBusiness Service Oriented Architecture TC. And I think we actually sent precedent by coming to a conclusion that we actually wanted to stop the work on that, uh, given that we did not see a standards-based service-oriented architecture reference model existing, and it seemed ludicrous to continue to try and develop a specialization of something that was not defined in the abstract. So a group of us uh, came to the inevitable conclusion that uh, this work had to take precedence over the other work and began a charter, and the a charter is, uh, is outlined on the next slide. Before I get into that, some of the, some of the problems that we found really uh, almost unbelievable were that SOA is getting so much hype in the press and by the analysts, uh, yet like the uh, three blind men touching the elephant, um, everybody thinks it's something slightly different based on what portion of it they're seeing or, or in that case, I guess, grasping according to that analogy. So going, going to the next slide, um, we really felt it was important to go into the abstract world at first and look at what SOA is and define and deliver a service-oriented architecture reference model. One of the key things that a lot of people have done, which I personally believe is errant, is that they've tried to define it based on pointing at implementations that claim conformance to the thing itself. And there are so many different uh, implementations of SOA, um, they all seem to think that they are the de facto SOA, but in reality these are specializations, they are not the thing. Uh, going to the next slide, we started with some very uh, old questions and started looking at the second one in, in more detail and kind of came to a uh, consensus on that. Uh, and this is what is software architecture. We, we felt it's really important to define this before we got onto the service-oriented architecture, which is a more specialized type of software architecture. And we came up with the definition based on a uh, very excellent book, in my opinion, uh, Addison Wesley, Clements et al. Um, software architecture for a system is a structure or structures of the system which consist of elements and their externally visible properties and the relationships amongst them, which seem to seem to uh, really um, resonate well with a lot of folks on the uh, the TC. On the next slide, we we then looked at the first question, which is, what is SOA? Um, my gut feeling is that if SOA is architecture, as the A in the name implies it is, it must be definable as architecture, and it must also be distinct from other architectures to warrant its existence. If we cannot define what SOA is, we really should abandon the term and stick with other things that we can define. Uh, so we took a very pragmatic view at it and looked at how do we define it. And the reference model seemed to be the best choice. Um, referencing and defining SOA by pointing at an implementation such as web services is a very bad idea. 
and there would never be consensus upon which to build sort of a formal standardized um, definition of service-oriented architecture in our opinion. So why, why did we decide the reference model was the best, uh, the best thing to use for the SOA uh, for definition? And if you go to the next slide. I'm sorry here, Peter, I can't see my slide numbers on here. I think we're, at the top it says an SOA reference model. I think that's slide number seven. So, so we, we really look at, uh, you know, what, what, what is the value of having a reference model? Well, a reference model isn't a specific architecture for a single uh, service-oriented implementation. Um, it's really a model that can be used for a, almost a framework for developing a range of architectures and the analysis or comparison of them. And if we look at some things that exist in uh, two of the uh, stacks, EDXML and Web Services, we'll see that they have some components that loosely equate to each other within the, the context of their own stacks. So if we look at uh, the idea of a uh, service discovery mechanism, uh, we could see in EDXML they have a registry repository, and in Web Services they have a service directory called UDDI. Both of these are really at a higher level uh, defined as a advertising mechanism where a service description could be uh, pushed uh, across the entire or consumed across the entire fabric uh, for those who may be service consumers. The framework also is important for understanding the relationships among the entities in the SOA environment. And this is really a core thing uh, for definition of SOA itself. And we really wanted to narrow the definition for the service-oriented architecture reference model to the number of uh, common elements that are present in all SOAs. And this really requires us to stay completely away from anything concrete, but to really uh, boil everything up to a very abstract level. If we look at going back to the service advertising mechanism itself, we might think, oh, well, you know, given that we're looking at EDXML and web services, we could define it as a registry component and say that a registry is part of SOA. But it's really something higher than there because registry is really a, uh, you know, publish and subscribe uh, dissemination or syndication model. Um, if you look at Bluetooth, which I would also classify as an instance of a service-oriented architecture, it uses a different type of advertising mechanism that uses broadcast uh, to get the message out of the services that are available. And that's a completely different type of implementation from the registry or directories used by the uh, software infrastructures uh, for EDXML and web services. What the work of the group is focused on is looking at if something is service-oriented architecture, what must it have? in order that it is SOA. What makes SOA SOA and makes SOA different from interface-based design or component-based architecture? And I'd like to sit here and say that we have the answers to those, but we don't right now. Uh, going to the next slide, uh, to slide number eight. This explains a little bit about the reference model as defined in the charter. And we've specialized the definition and the, uh, the use case for our reference model a little bit uh, more than just the model itself. 
and that includes the, the framework. And it's unclear where this exactly will lead to during the next six months or nine months, however long it takes us to get a draft out, but we anticipate that there should be some uh, very interesting conversations in it. Um, this, in my opinion, is also very similar in some ways to, you know, defining a ontology because we're really defining not only the thing but how it's related to the other things. And at this level, we're in such an abstract world that I think it would roughly equate to the uh, the upper upper layers of uh, sumo, the kind of first order logic type uh, um, methodology. So. We want to go forward and build these things and define them. And really, we want to look at the widest cross-section of things that claim they are SOA in the process. And there's a lot of aspects of that that we've, we've looked at and realized there's a lot of pitfalls and rat holes that are out there. And we, we hope to avoid it. Going on to the next slide. <coughs> In the documentation that accompanies the charter that sets the mandate and vision for the SOARM technical committee, uh, there are some questions that have been asked of us. We've kind of started assembling a uh, a Q and A, and some of the uh, some of hello. Just go ahead. Okay. Some some of the more common questions that that keep popping up. I just wanted to uh, provide some answers for and. Hopefully, this should clarify uh, some of the uh, the common misperceptions. And I, I'm probably preaching to the choir in this group, but nevertheless, uh, there there is uh, an unbelievably large uh, constituency of analysts, press, and other technologists who seem to uh, get a lot of these things confused. One of the questions is the top one is what are you know why are things I see in other SOAs not in the draft reference model? And we have defined a, a draft reference model, which I'll show you in a, uh, a few more slides. And these included things like security, reliable messaging, etc. Uh, even the concept of messaging as a as a whole. Uh, why doesn't that exist in the reference model? Why isn't security there? Well, the the answer is very simple to this. Security is not a concept that is present in all service-oriented architectures. Now, having said that, I could throw out the argument that even having no security is still an instance of security. It's really the uh, gets to the question of is is uh, zero a number? I guess, and this is something I'd like to throw out to this group and just uh, you know, as the work progresses, get some feedback on. Um, there's a lot of a lot of abstract uh, thinking that could really help us, I, I think, in this respect. Um, messaging, is messaging really part of the, the core um, reference model for service-oriented architecture? So we, we look at it like this. If somebody designs a software component or application and says, this is service-oriented architecture I use to guide the creation of this thing, does it have to include messaging? Well. No. Our opinion is that the service itself may contain a way to bind to it, but the idea is, is that it is a, a service that is implemented on behalf of some of the functionality. And the service is really providing, if you go back to the definition of architecture, it's really that externally visible set of properties for that component. 
and how you bind to it is the relationship amongst those. And messaging is a concept that in an implementation or a concrete architecture would certainly be there, but in the reference model itself would not be present. A lot of people have a, have a great deal of trouble wrapping their heads around this statement. Um, second question, why don't I see two entities in the reference model, a service consumer and a service provider? Well, for something to be SOA, if uh, I build an application, it doesn't necessarily uh, have to be invoked-oriented. Therefore, it doesn't need both the service provider and the service consumer. So, in other words, if I make something, just by providing the service, the thing itself is service-oriented. There's no pattern of runtime in the notion of the reference model, or no notion of the runtime pattern in the reference model. Um, <clears throat> how does infrastructure fit into the REST reference model? And the answer to this is it doesn't, and it doesn't require the definition of the core infrastructure. All of this type of stuff will be defined in concrete architectures that use the reference model as a guide. So concrete is architecture, abstract will remain as the reference model. And one of the things that we've done in the uh, EBSOATC was come up with a um, architectural reference model for patterns. And the question popped up, how does the service-oriented architectural reference model relate to the pattern concept? And the answer to that one, again, is very simple, and that is, it is a pattern. And we can come back to this slide later. <clears throat> uh, the next slide, please. This is slide number nine. <coughs> You're going on to number oh, slide ten. number ten. Yeah. And you can see I inadvertently didn't put in a uh, clear background on this uh, PNG that's uh, sitting in here, so it looks a bit odd. Um, this is our candidate for a base service-oriented architecture reference model. So this looks at what are the core things that are present in all SOAs. Well, the concept of a service is there. The service is the gateway into the component. And this really adheres to the principle of interface-based design. Now, this by itself is not really distinguishable from other types of architectures that have been around in the past. And even, you know, object-oriented methodology uh, in programming models could be said to provide services and the fact that they provide interfaces into a class. So we looked at what else is related to the service. Well, the service details are captured in a service description. Um, the service description also references an associated data model. And the data model is really the constraints and structure and also the keyword being semantics of what goes in and out of the service. And this really puts an onus and uh, I, I would say in some ways a uh, abstract tie-in to the work of ontologies and, uh, and other semantic initiatives because for both the service description to be able to provide details of the service, there has to be some notion of a common understanding of the semantics available in that service description. The service description is advertised via some sort of an advertising service. And this is not just constrained to registry and repository. There's many models for this. There could be unicast. Uh, there could be multicast. There could be anycast, broadcast. There could be a combination of a uh, unicast and then a broadcast. 
uh, as a second stage to that, which is uh, uh, could also be a uh, unit to uh, multicast relationship, um, <clears throat> such as the uh, register repository or service directory model. The last thing that the <clears throat> candidate-based SOA reference model has in it uh, that's really important to note and also has a direct relationship to the ontological work is the implication of a contract for invoking the service. And in this case, I would say that the contract is not really in a necessarily always an explicit contract. It doesn't necessarily have to be manifested as a, uh, a concrete artifact in a uh, instance of service-oriented architecture, but there is the concept or notion or implied contract of what it means to invoke the service. Some other important notes about this. Um, discovering details about the service doesn't necessi necessitate in itself that you will use the service. You may discover the details about the service through the service description and the data model, and based on your understanding of that and the contract uh, that is implied by invoking the service, you may you know, either not have permission to invoke the service or you may decide not to invoke the service. So there's a lot of uh, further intricacies in this core reference model uh, when we start getting beyond looking at you know, what the uh, deployment models are and we start thinking about this in a, in a very abstract sense. Um, you know, where where do we see a tie into things like messaging and security? Well, in a concrete architecture, the service description would probably imply or explicitly declare some sort of a security constraint. Uh, with the contract itself, there may also be a uh, contractual obligation to use some form of a security protocol when invoking or consuming a service. So a lot of these things do relate to these, but you can see that uh, from the uh, core reference model that we've, uh, we've built as a candidate right now, we've really waded through a lot of uh, FUD in the marketplace and really come up with only the things at a very, very high level, a very abstract level. <coughs> so if we can all go to slide number 11. I'll just run through some of the definitions. Um, a service itself is a, a contractually defined behavior that can be implemented and provided by a component for use by any component solely based on the contract. So, possibly circular reasoning in this this uh, grammar definition, but it gets the uh, the gist of what it is across. The service description is really the technical parameters constraints policies that come together to define the, the terms of the invocation. A uh, question <coughs> that is still lingering for us uh, in the service description itself is the contract part of the service description. We haven't got that far. We haven't made a judgment call on that, but we have had some very interesting discussion around that. In advertising, a service that is available must somehow communicate its service descriptions uh, to all the potential service consumers on a fabric. And again, this is uh, try not to get bogged down in, in details of thinking in terms of concrete, think in terms of abstract. Um, you know, to some degree, if you look at the architectural pattern of somebody sitting behind the desk of a hotel waiting to book you into a room, 
you know, in some ways that could be, uh, if you see that with your eye, could be deemed advertising. So there's a many, a lot of many different uh, models for how this could follow. Uh, we're going to try and stick in the software architectural realm for defining service-oriented architecture, but we also had a, a conversation. Does this extend beyond just software architecture? Is service-oriented architecture something that, uh, for instance, uh, would be present in a business model for how a government operates? Interesting questions. <clears throat> uh, on to the next slide. The data model is the specification and constraints imposed on instance data within the uh, SOA environment. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of this stuff sounds very easy at first, and uh, you know, a lot of the the web services and DBXML groups will really, you know, when they when they look at something like this, use the XML schema to do this. Well. I would suggest that there is a little bit more to it than using XML schema. XML schema itself can sure tell you about the structure and some of the constraints on the structure and the syntax of the data going in and out at the instance level. What it doesn't give you is anything to do with semantics. So within this data model concept, you know, and an implementable service-oriented architecture, I would suggest that there is a 100% requirement that there be some sort of a uh, semantic or some sort of association or relationship to, to uh, the semantics implied within the data model. And of course, this is true for the contract as well. <coughs> so on to slide number, uh, sorry, the extended view, the next one here, slide number 13. 13. <coughs> I'm losing my voice here, guys. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> in order to, um, you know, closely relate this abstract uh, realm to concrete service-oriented architecture work, we also toyed around with the possible inclusion uh, in a non-normative uh, context of an extended view of a service-oriented architecture. And this would really provide a lot of the uh, context of the relationship to concrete implementations. And if you go to the next slide, there is a uh, depiction of this, this extension to it. <coughs> and this starts to look a little bit more like the W3C web, service ar web services architecture. Having a service provider or agent uh, and having a service consumer or agent that consumes a service. So these things are not really necessary as part of the core reference model. And it's possible that the service, by its existence itself, includes and implies that there is some sort of a provider present, whether it's a, uh, a human actor or some other system actor, like an application. Um, for something to be SOA, it's not necessary that it ever actually be consumed as a service. For it to be service-oriented architecture, it just has to be architected with a service and the other faucets of SOA. So go on to the next slide. <coughs> Concrete architectures. <coughs> so this is slide 15. Slide 15, yes. So 
the question came up, um, you know, what kind of uh, declaration of uh, compliance would be in the service-oriented architecture reference model? Well, this hasn't been decided yet either. We haven't even had our first formal meeting yet. Um, all we have is some notes, ideas, and scribblings, and uh, some very good conversation so far. But it may be possible that there is a declaration that an SOA architecture is compliant with the reference model if it has one instance of all of the elements or concepts in the reference model within the normative architecture definition. <coughs> uh, of course, a concrete architecture may greatly extend beyond what is in the service-oriented uh, architecture reference model, and it would be, uh, of course, expected that any concrete architecture would um, expand the definition and, and have some more uh, concrete elements of the architecture. This would include the things like uh, mandating specific messaging protocols, security protocols, uh, defining some concrete bindings, and any other specifications that would be used within the infrastructure. Based on the uh, reference model candidate that was on uh, slide number uh, was it, uh, 10, uh, there is a list or a partial list of architectures that would be currently um, compliant with the reference model. And that includes uh, CORBA, Bluetooth, web services, EDXML, the UMC FACTI business architecture, the web itself, uh, IECM, which is the interoperable enterprise content management architecture, and uh, there's a number of others that would, of course, fit into this category. And that's, um, you know, given that the, the reference model uh, candidate, the way it's defined is really large enough you could really, uh, you know, fit a lot of things or correlate a lot of things into it. <coughs> so, <coughs> with that being said, I'd like to go to the next slide and just uh, kick off an informal discussion and get some, uh, um, <coughs> you know, feedback on this so far. Now, uh, there's a few different topics out there. The first one I'd like to, to kick out and get some, uh, some input on is, um, based on what you've seen so far, uh, would you consider the reference model uh, core candidate, uh, as expressed on slide 10, um, functionally complete? Or would you, any of you uh, suggest that perhaps there is other aspects or other concepts or common elements that are ubiquitous to all SOAs that along in the core reference model. Uh, Peter Yim here. Uh, I guess my, I have a question which would be related to both your number one and number three discussion points. Uh, you are making an assumption that uh, the, the service description is commonly understood among people who are discovering the service, which definitely would be an assumption. I guess if one puts an ontology somewhere so that uh, that shared understanding is is uh, part of the uh, service description, then I guess it would not be ambiguous. Yeah, I would I would um, you know respond and say that it's absolutely critical that uh, the service description, the contract, and the data model be universally uh, interpreted in a consistent manner. Dwayne, it's more question for you. Why is the service advertising advertising the description rather than the service itself? 
Uh, Dwayne, Peter Brown in brackets, before you answer that, could, could you also explain why... Could you, could you explain why service advertising, advertising a service description rather than the other way around? Should be the service description providing information to a service advertiser, in my opinion. But anyway. Um, well then I'm just going to flip back. Yeah, the, ser the service advertising or the advertising mechanism advertises the service. Um, I think that arrow is the right way around, is it not? Well, it seems like it's the right way around. I just don't believe that it should be advertising the description. That rather, it's advertising the availability of the service. And the description is an adjunct <coughs> semantic piece of information about the service that helps people understand it. Once the, the advertising should point to the service, because not everybody's going to need or want the service description. That's a uh, that's a good discussion topic. <coughs> um, I think uh, now just uh, some some of the conversations we had had were that the cardinality of this relationship may be that a service may have more than one service description as well. Uh, which may be advertised to different groups of potential consumers. Mm -hmm. uh, would that weigh into um, into uh, your question at all? Well, I don't know. I guess in that case, I'm wondering if, if you're really talking about a bundled service, a service that comprises many, many individual services, and, and then you're sort of getting away from the whole concept, aren't you? I mean, my understanding has always been that a service with a service is a unique, discrete applet at the end of a node that provides some sort of piece of information that's being requested of it, rather than being multifunctional, providing multiple different uh, pieces of information. Well, the service uh, doesn't necessarily provide information out of it. A service could also only be invoked and nothing could come back out of the service. Well, that's true. That's true. Depending on the information that you provide to the service and what this, exactly the service's functionality is. Yeah. So it's not, it's not necessarily that for a transaction to be completed, there has to be a, re a request and response in all cases. Nevertheless, it still seems to me that you still would be advertising discrete services. Okay. I would also ask you, Dwayne, that is it somewhat presumptuous to imply a contract uh, associated with every service? Well, this is this is a um, this is a discussion, and um, the contract itself. You know, if you think upon it in terms of an explicitly uh, declared contract, I would answer no. But if it's an implied contract, even if the contract says that you may use this with no terms and conditions, we view that as it is still a contract. It is kind of back to that is zero a number argument again. Okay, so even if I'm saying you may use my service and I incur no liability for the results of the, the, anything that may result from your use of that service, that is a contract offer you just made. Okay. Have you had? Have you all had any discussion on on how it is that you would affect that contract? 
No, there's there's going to be no uh, discussion of any uh, you know concrete mechanisms in the reference model because the mechanisms for this vary uh, considerably. Uh, for instance, in a in a Bluetooth environment, it may be as simple as um, you know somebody who has the device just says, "I open this up to everybody to use, regardless of who they are." Uh, somebody who runs a uh, HTTP web server may allow all but deny a group or range of IP addresses. Um, so the, the the actual mechanism for a contract differs substantially from implementation to implementation. But we tried to capture the uh, the concept as a core part of any service being offered. Is that you know there is some form of a contract explicitly there. I'm just uh, writing down your first question. That's a really good uh, uh, question. And I want to definitely pose that back to the group during our first, uh, our first meeting. I, I actually tend to think that the advertising of the surface description probably has it right, because the, the surface is actually the surface, and, and it is presented uh, by way of describing what it will do. So the advertising actually advertises uh, the, the, the description, what it will do, and, and what is entailed in, in getting that service. Is there another aspect of a service advertising that deals with something like the honest broker role? That is something between the service consumer and the service provider there is that has a sufficient understanding to uh, make a broker uh, function. There is definitely, um, in a lot of service-oriented architectures, there is the concept of the agent or the object, uh, the um, broker in the middle. So, for instance, uh, CORB is the first one that comes to mind with the ORB, the object request broker in the middle. Um, the very notion of service itself, and this is some other uh, other thinking, if you look at an actual concrete implementation, the service itself is really the broker, is it not? If I have some sort of core logic going on in an application, I use the service as a broker to offer access to that core logic through that service. Uh, there's the notion of honest, honesty and trust. And the term advertising conjures up uh, a lot of uh, surplus uh, negative concerns. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of just the honest uh, broker uh, uh, trust aspect, which uh, may or may not exist. In your, uh, appropriately in your model? Well, advertising, uh, the advertising mechanism, or in this case it's really the concept of service advertising, uh, really could cover quite a gamut of implementations. And it could, you know, operate under, uh, in a concrete implementation, uh, as be implemented as an honest broker. Uh, it could also be that I implement something and I I tell you verbally over the telephone that here's the endpoint of my service. It may be by, you know, non-application to application means. It's just the concept that if you have a service, 
uh, in order that the service be potentially consumed or invoked at some point in time, there must be an actual way to relay the information that the service exists and the details about it to the potential consumers or the uh, constituency of consumers on the fabric. It's another good point that we should definitely bring up at the meeting. Can I talk you into joining the TC? That was Kurt, right? Bob, I believe. Oh, Bob? Okay. Was it? Right. Yep, yep. Okay. Uh, hey, it's Mark again. Uh, it, it, the other question I've got is you say that every service has a data model. Uh, are you saying that, it, that that is a discrete data model that supports that service, or the service is is using some data model that may or may not be discrete to that service? Uh, every, every service has some concept of a data model involved with it being out there. And, you know, it's, it's something we haven't, out of all the, the concepts here, this one is probably the least discussed right now. And just to provide context to it, this is um, uh, this base candidate SOA reference model. We haven't had any normative discussion in the new TC about it yet. So a lot of these questions I'm soliciting feedback on with the, the hope of actually, uh, you know, throwing these questions out at the first meeting. Um, what's, your, what's your opinion of that? What's my opinion of it? I, I would almost think that a service, as a discrete service, may use part of a, a larger reference model inside the architecture that the service is supporting or attended to, rather than creating discrete data models to support each service. What's your definition of a discrete data model in this context? In this context, it would be a data model that was whose definition was limited exclusively to the subset of data used by the service. Okay. Um, would this would this include potentially? Um, and this is this is a wide open question. If anyone else wants to take a stab at answering this, would this include the data model for the service description itself? In that respect, I'd almost think maybe the service description would be a, a discrete data model. Uh, those components in the service description could be a discrete data model for the service, but it would be limited to the service description as opposed to the data points that the, the service itself might might use. Good, uh, a good point. Notice I'm being like a politician. I'm not actually providing too many answers. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things, I think, right now that uh, anyone who claims to have the answers, I would be very suspicious of. But there's lots of opinions on it, which is the most important thing. It makes the work interesting. Uh, uh, Dwayne, um, could you comment on who 
you anticipate will be the users of the model when you have one developed? How, who will use it and how will it be used? Um, I, I would anticipate that those who are designing service-oriented architectures would use the reference model as their, you know, upper guide to developing SOA. So if somebody specifically said, I'm going to build this and it will be SOA, it will help people understand what is what SOA is and hopefully it will provide some clarity to the marketplace as well um, with respect to the analysts and press and others who are um, fighting about with the uh, messaging that exists today, uh, you know, web services is SOA. Well, yes, it is SOA, but it's only one instance of SOA. And, you know, how do we determine if something is SOA? You know, what what is SOA, what is not SOA, what falls in the boundaries of SOA, what is on the outside boundaries of the box? Um, there's a number of different potential uses for it. I can't forecast with any accuracy, um, you know, the, the acceptance of it. Um, but I, I'm hopeful that it will provide some value to those who also wish to compare various architectures and state that, you know, the, the Federal Enterprise Architecture uh, Program actually is embracing the core concepts of service-oriented service architecture and therefore will probably, um, by implementing it, derive some of the benefits of service-oriented architecture, which are repurposing of interfaces uh, for various functions that either have not been done before or provide a greater value to the, the constituency. Um, you know, isolating components uh, from, you know, the rest of the system and the event they have to be upgraded, uh, you know, replaced, etc., which is kind of more along the lines of interface-based design. So there was, there's a number of, uh, a number of comments we've got back on SOA. And a number of analysts have stated, uh, you know, why SOA is important. But I tend to be very pragmatic about it, and I would like to hear, you know, once once you get closer to having established a uh, candidate-based SOA reference model, I would like to hear more about what the possible uses are for it as well. Dwayne, could I chip in here? Sure. From Brussels. Um, in the conference and the work we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. Uh, the issues come up of how individual national administrations can advertise and provide information about the different e-government electronic services that each national administration provides, particularly in the EU where there are a lot of cross-border issues where uh, service provided in one country may have to be also provided in other countries. And one of the requirements that came up in the discussions is that each national administration is looking to build some sort of infrastructure to support their interoperability framework and advertising and description of the e-government services they provide. And the question is, what's, what standard do they use such that each of the different national administration systems can talk to each other? And it seems that the reference model we're talking about here provides at least a, a, a key part of the answer, that if there is a common semantics over the the main components of the uh, services which are provided by each national administration, 
we're not constraining any administration to use any particular implementation, whether that be based on web services, eBXML, etc. So I think there, there's a whole family of possible implementations and uses of the reference model. One of the uh, core directives, too, um, and thank you, Peter, that was that's a great uh, input, um, is that really the reference model should encourage the continued growth of specific and different uh, service-oriented architectures um, while preserving that common layer uh, for sharing and understanding uh, and you know analyzing the differences between those implementations. Um, with that, I've noticed we're at the, at the one hour mark halfway through. I'd like to uh, ask that uh, if this is okay, if we move on to uh, the second, uh, the part two, which is going to be probably a little bit more interesting. Sure. Hearing no objections. Yep. I will advance to slide number 18. 18. So this um, the second part is really, um, you know, ima imagine me coming into a room and just lobbing some grenades around and then leaving. I'm just kind of, uh, you know, stirring up the pot and, uh, uh, you know, seeing what kind of uh, conversations come out of this. But I always like to think a little bit further ahead and, uh, you know, think about, okay, imagine that we've done all this wonderful stuff we're talking about and, uh, you know, what could we do with it? What could be built upon it? Um, that usually, in my opinion, helps, you know, with the current present stuff as well when you look at what might be needed in the future. So imagine a world five, well, three to five years from now where SOA is ubiquitous. Uh, we have some sort of a, uh, you know, infrastructure in place where we can uh, uh, query and, you know, pass semantics about between applications with reasonable consistency, um, that we have multiple ontologies in place, and uh, uh, plug here for Sumo that there is but one upper-merged ontology to help us manage all of the other ontologies. And some of the base components are there, which is the mappings between the uh, ontologies. The question I wanted to pose was, can we build intelligent thinking networks of logic? Uh, can we, you know, turn on a few switches with these mechanisms in place and have systems carry on thinking almost as a, a human being would uh, think and react to a certain set of situations in a certain context? So. The idea um, popped into my head on the next slide uh, of intelligence-driven enterprise architectures. And this was based largely on a presentation I saw from uh, David Luckham in uh, London last year, who I consider to be one of the, uh, the top guys in the, uh, the area of uh, event causality programming and uh, uh, reconciliation. Um, imagine that all these components are there the infrastructure could be uh, present that would enable applications by taking and analyzing events real time as they occur and querying a ontology or set of ontologies as well as understanding the implied semantics uh, based on the context in which these events have occurred could deduce that a pattern warrants some sort of action. And this has all kinds of um, implications from the, the ob very, very obvious to the not so obvious. We go to the next slide. The idea is that 
um, that David Luckham was toying around with was that if you have patterns of events that occur and the ability to understand the causality relationship between these plus knowledge sources to query um, and the ability to hypothesize off of these, um, through an iterative set of steps, you could probably evaluate the hypothesis and probably infer that certain outcome should be taken. Yeah. Uh, sorry, is somebody... Uh, okay, so they... <clears throat> The theorem and analysis uh, could relate to possible actions. So if we go to the next slide, there is a UML drawing with some uh, incorrect stereotypes on some of the uh, some of the things. But this is really basically just mapping out some of the concepts that that would be present in this sort of infrastructure. Um, there would have to be some sort of a notion of uh, a constraint or um, enumerated list of types of events that the semantics would be understood by some sort of an application. When an event occurs, it would occur in a set of contexts that would help um, specifically constrain its semantics, much the same way that the UNCFAT uh, core components works, um, to define the exact uh, constraints on a business information entity uh, based on the context plus the core component it comes from. Um, understanding an event occurs would be just the start of it. Uh, being able to then query through some sort of a knowledge source and being able to say, this event involves this object, and then querying a ontology to say, what other objects are related to this thing? So an example is a property is missing from a, a scene of a crime, um, we could query the ontology uh, from an application standpoint and say, um, an instance of object is missing. What other things are related to object? Well, object has an owner, an object has a location, etc., etc. And through that analysis, uh, it's possible that we could infer we should search through other systems to look for other events that may be related to this event. For instance, an object uh, which was an instance of jewelry and the description was diamond ring was stolen from a home invasion where somebody was beaten up. And we find there's another event, which is that within three hours at a pawn shop uh, in a close geographical proximity, this ring was submitted to a pawn shop by somebody with a known record of breaking and entering into houses. That may be something that warrants um, you know, looking into further. And there's a lot of aspects of this. Uh, this is far from incomplete. Um, there's, uh, I know, um, Adam, uh, you have uh, built an inference engine, and I'd, I'd be very interested to, to know what kind of roadblocks you see on this and what your opinions of this are. Um, there's, there's a lot of different uh, work that has gone, and I'm sure many of you on the, on the call are familiar with this, uh, things like the... Uh, the Blackboard AI pattern, which can itself lead to problems with a uh, ballooning of possible hypothesis. And, you know, I believe that there's probably through tuning ways to manage and mitigate those. And, you know, with a, an SOA infrastructure in place and a shared conceptualization of what the semantics are of certain events and 
the aspects of those events, there would be a way for an application to eventually be able to deduce that I need to talk to this interface next and get this information and depending on the outcome of that, maybe do something else. We go to the next slide. There are some concrete use cases here that could be mitigated. Uh, some of the scarier ones are related to the very existence of the, uh, the human race. Um, SARS was a wake-up call. SARS went uh, 45 times exponential growth in 30 days. If you take 321 cases and multiply that by 30, or by 45, and multiply that number by 45, by the time you get to the six months, the number is greater than the number of human beings inhabiting the planet. So being able to track the outbreaks of infectious diseases, whether it be on humans or for livestock or animals, is a very large pain point today, and such a system could probably help uh, analyze and recognize the patterns of events and the causality between them and result in actions being taken at a much earlier stage in the, uh, the event unfolding. Another example that was used by uh, David Luckham was the uh, example where Nick Leeson, who worked for Barclays Bank, and uh, I think it was the 90s, the early 90s, after the big earthquake in Kobe, Japan, all the stock markets uh, were artificially depressed. Nick decided to go along on futures on the, uh, the market indexes, and he started putting up some money that belonged to Barclays Bank on this. And Barclays head office in London was actually hidden from this through IT blindness. Well, Nick kept on going longer and longer, and the indexes kept falling and falling to the point where he finally realized that he had leveraged Barclays Bank, which at the time had a net worth of $1.2 billion. Uh, he had leveraged them for $27 billion. If they were able to recognize the series of events that were going on at their satellite office in Asia, they would have been able to actually recognize that something was not right long before the guy came over and knocked on their door and said, Hi, I hope you guys are having a nice day, and by the way, I'm here to get the $27 billion. Cash will be fine. In New York City, there was a, uh, uh, something which I thought was uh, rather amusing. A rocket scientist at one of the, uh, Manhattan's banks um, departments decided to streamline the deposit process by putting a barcode at the bottom of everybody's deposit slips. And when the deposits were made, and this was before direct deposits were made and, and you know, back when people used to actually have a physical paycheck, the idea is, is that the teller would just have to key in a couple things and they would print out a third piece of paper which would be a transaction and then the transaction would just uh, scan the barcode off the deposit slip and scan the numbers at the bottom of the check and credit the right account. But some guy picked up on this and said, I've got an idea. He went out and printed a whole bunch of deposit slips, literally mailed them to everybody in most of the affluent postal codes in uh, lower Manhattan, and along with the letter uh, purporting to be from the bank and said, if you don't use these new deposit slips instead of your old ones, you won't have access to your money. So people went to the bank and made all their deposits. Well, it all went to one single account, and I guess the, uh, the story is the guy walked in five minutes before the end of the, uh, the day and withdrew several million dollars in cashier's checks and error bonds or whatever. He, he got away with some negotiable, untraceable instrument and disappeared forever.
And then there's fishing. Fishing mm -hmm. is an fishing is another pain point that needs to really be uh, mitigated. And if you go to the next page, um, you know you've probably all seen this kind of spam coming into your inbox. Uh, you know, PayPal, eBay could be from uh, pretending to be from a bank says you have to change your password. There's a problem. There's been a security breach. Well, to somebody who's less than um, you know capable of uh, analyzing and recognizing that the IP address at the top of that uh, page is not an actual eBay address. They may actually go in and change their password. The pattern of, event, uh, of events would be that you would have a large number of people changing their passwords, and in a very short temporal displacement, you would also have the same accounts having all their money withdrawn from them. And being able to understand the causality between those events or infer the causality could result in these patterns being recognized at a much earlier stage and some of the, uh, the pain points mitigated from some of these types of attacks. Um, as an interesting side note, the very latest um, uh, variation of this phishing attack now, there are actually uh, people who are using Unicode characters in the URL. So when you look at the top, it looks like it might say Microsoft, but the O is not the English character O. It is an actual uh, Unicode character that looks suspiciously close to an O and actually goes to a different address. And people can actually, through very clever use of digital IDs, can actually uh, mimic the fact that it's a secure transaction. And all but the most uh, um, anal about security would probably be uh, somewhat fooled by this. Going on to the next uh, slide. So idea is more than just about defense. This is about really correlating events and understanding the causality between them, which could also lead to opportunities. Uh, it ends IT blindness and really starts to build what I would call mechanical intelligence as opposed to artificial intelligence. Um, the consumption of the events and the data and the access to the knowledge sources would be absolutely critical, which would mean Things like ontological references must be available through some sort of a core and ubiquitous SOA infrastructure. And the output uh, could be thoughts, ideas, hypothesis, um, you know, the recommendations of action to be taken. On to the next page. And this is, uh, sorry, I'm just going to spit out the number here for... 25. 25? Okay. So... The semantic associations are absolutely a, uh, a necessary part of this. Um, you know, an event happens, what does it mean? Well, and if an event happens, there's probably some sort of a instance of an object that is uh, um, part of that event. And it's really important to be able to understand or be able to query something and find out, you know, what this might signify and then what else might be related to that. What else could I query on to, you know, justify my hypothesis or disprove it and eliminate it from what I'm doing? And this was something that in a lot of the Blackboard AI pattern implementation uh, hadn't really been contemplated, which was a more accurate ability to eliminate uh, hypothesis at an earlier state to actually... Um, you know, lessen the, the uh, ballooning or the exponential growth of possible hypothesis on the blackboard itself. And to me, I think one of the, the key concepts here would be really 
having access to an ontology of ontologies so that you could understand how this thing, this object that was related or associated with this event, might be related to other things, and then understanding from that or being able to infer from that what other systems you could query to either prove or disprove that without continually building it up to the point where you have um, you know, too much uh, CPU space going uh, wasted. Uh, the next slide. To make this a reality, applications would not only uh, need to be able to query an ontology and be able to correlate instances of things with the, the abstract concept or conceptualization of these things, but then they would have to also know what other systems could provide them information about things or instances of things related to that concept, and also the nature of that relationship. So there's a lot of different ways to do this. Um, the service-oriented architecture infrastructure would probably be, uh, if I was going to architect something like this, the way I would I would do it right now. And there's a lot of different uh, different ways this could be instantiated. Uh, the the association, <coughs> the last bullet point on this slide, uh, in my opinion, um, you know, the the associations between the concepts and the logic logic. Um, you know, must be exposed through some sort of interface. And I wanted to throw two questions out there. And the first question is, uh, is something that I'd like to have a bit of discussion on is, do you agree or disagree with this statement? Hmm. Sounds like a head of peace type question. Well, the... the <coughs> Feel free to take a stab at the second one too, which is, uh, does this enable true mechanical intelligence, or, or is this starting to approximate the process of how a human being would investigate something? I don't know. I, I think we, should, we have to be very, very careful with claims for intelligence, either artificial or mechanical. Um, it, it's. Uh, absolutely true that once we start having formalized logical definitions of things, then I think we have the basis for doing things that start to look intelligent. At the very least, to catch the kind of common sense error conditions that you're talking about with your previous examples about uh, investment and disease. Yeah. So, so the the ontology, the formal definitions, these are these are enabling conditions, but they're certainly not sufficient to get us to anything called intelligence. Of course, you know we don't need to get to anything that we would call intelligence to be extremely useful and extremely valuable. True, and um, just to uh, qualify the context of, um, I, I used the term I think AI on the previous slide. I'm not talking about AI in the, uh, the classical context. I'm really, um, I'm, what I'm really referring to by the term mechanical intelligence is the ability to uh, bestow uh, some sort of cognitive reasoning on a application or a series of applications where an application could duplicate the kind of steps a human being might take to comprehend the significance of something that has happened, and to then figure out or 
deduce that something else should happen to mitigate that or react to that set of events. So I, I don't know if that really qualifies as artificial intelligence, which is why I was uncomfortable using that term. Mechanical intelligence I, I used as a term that, uh, um, you know, to me I would, I would classify that as a duplication of a human thought process or a, a thought process that a human might take in response to a given set of uh, actions or events. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, regardless of what we call it, that would be, you know, basic deduction is a useful capability and I think one that will be essential as our information systems scale up to the point at which we can't have a defined mechanical procedure for every kind of common sense simple problem that we'd like to catch. And the way around that is to have a general purpose inference system and a large ontology that can be searching for these problems, you know, semi-autonomously and catching simple things without explicitly being told the steps to do so, just through the process of, of search and inference. Cool. There's a, there's a number of very, uh, very large pain points, too, that um, I think, you know, could be addressed with some of this as well. Um, things that are, you know, seemingly insignificant and seemingly unrelated uh, but the um, the uh, Al Hassani um, example I gave last week on our call, where they uh, the UK uh, secret police, or I guess it was the, uh, the James Bondish type organization. I forget what they're called, MI5 or something. MI6. MI6. Okay, I know one's a free, one's an intelligence agency, I think. And. Um, <clears throat> You know, they, they found these guys and they knew they were up to something and when they finally arrested them and went into their house, they had 10,000 or so smoke detectors and the plan was to take the radioactive material out of these. Well, anyone that buys 10,000 smoke detectors or any group of people that travel around Europe buying smoke detectors on a large scale, maybe uh, some sort of an event that somebody wants to look into. So I'll leave these questions lingering for now and move on to the next slide. The system seemed to have hung here for a sec. Hey Peter, my uh, system doesn't seem to be responding to this right now. Oh, here it goes. The slide 27. Slide 27, yeah. Um, this is a little bit more of an elaboration, and I, I kind of uh, apologize for trying to, you know, set anyone up on the previous side with this, which is what it looks like I was trying to do, but it wasn't the intent. Um, I really, I really did deem artificial intelligence a bit of a misnomer in this context because, you know, first of all, I think it's hard to define. Um, if you look at uh, some of the uh, simplistic tuple actions that could be taken. I think these really are, are what you know such a, a system could uh, start to to get at. And this is really you know kind of and I guess the correlation of actions to events and processing in in between the two things. And next slide. <clears throat> uh, there's been a lot of uh, discussion in the past about the Blackboard engine, and I've got some great pointers by a few people from this group, uh, which have, have actually in, increased my understanding of the Blackboard AI pattern quite a bit. Um, 
for those of you unfamiliar with it, the Blackboard AI pattern is <laughs> basically a, a um, architectural pattern or a, uh, I guess a model for finding an answer to something where there is no known answer. So if I ask the question, um, you know, what um, did I do on January 2nd of this year? None of you know the answer to that. But you could probably take steps to start building hypothesis about it. And it approximates how humans in a room would, would start to, you know, figure out an answer to it. Somebody might go up and write onto the blackboard that, well, Dwayne was probably drinking on January 1st, probably stayed up late, uh, might have been hung over on it, so maybe he sat on the couch and did nothing on the morning. And somebody else might say, you know, I, I concur with this theory, and they might build it out a little bit more. And it's, it's just a, a reiterative process of putting up something, building a hypothesis, evaluating the hypothesis, and either getting rid of it or continuing on with it or possibly branching it into next possible action. Whenever it's being tried, uh, to my knowledge, to be implemented, there's been a problem, which is that there is a almost instantaneous exponential growth of uh, potential hypothesis, which ends up, uh, you know, choking up most systems. My assertion on this subject would be that the next time somebody takes a look at implementing something like a Blackboard pattern, having a better grasp or a better understanding of an ontology that relates to the, the context of the problem they're trying to look at would probably help in the evaluation and hypothesis of, of uh, the uh, application. So, going on to the next slide, that basically ends the, uh, the presentation format of this. On uh, slide 30, there are some uh, additional uh, references um, to some of the stuff uh, we talked about today. Um, in case anyone wanted to, to look into it in their own time a little bit more. Um, I wanted to get some feedback and thoughts on this, and uh, I just wanted to also add the disclaimer, this is nothing Adobe is contemplating building at any time in the near future. Uh, this is just uh, a forward-thinking exercise, and I'm very interested in, uh, in hearing critiques, um, arguments, opinions, anything that may come up out of this. Silence and for his agreement. <laughs> well, I, I think that was, uh, it's been a very interesting uh, presentation from Dwayne and uh, exciting, uh, the, the possibilities that are coming up. Uh, maybe back to, uh, back to a little bit about the uh, architecture reference model. With validation, uh, be part of the exercise in, in the TC that you're working at? Uh, validation in which context? But it, 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 it's, I mean, compliance to uh, a, a certain service-oriented uh, architecture. It would be beyond the scope of our TC to make any statements or declaration about what is SOA, what is not SOA. 
as far as evaluating a specific architecture and saying, we believe this one is SOA or another one and saying this one is not SOA. Um, so validation definitely is not part of the scope? No. We, we would, you know, hopefully provide enough um, material in the reference model that would help guide those who may wish to undergo that exercise on their own. But we're not looking to normatively prescribe, uh, you know, things on specific people at this point. I think, first of all, that would be such a such a large uh, undertaking that it would be probably not a wise expenditure of our time. Is any group potentially going in in that direction? Uh, Beyond, I mean, the reference model. I mean, that seems like a logical next step. It. It could be. I'm not aware of any group that has, has um, you know, expressed an interest in that right now. Um, you know, I, I don't know what the, you know, what the outcome of that may be, or what the, uh, you know, what the motivation for doing that would even be. description of an ontology of ontologies uh, seems quite intriguing. Do you have further uh, thoughts on that topic? Sorry, on the ontology of ontologies? Correct. <coughs> um, I definitely see that for, you know, the given the state of the world, which is that, you know, we will have multiple ontologies. Uh, there needs to be one at a higher level that can declare, you know, both the first-order logic and also act as a, a crosswalk between the others. Um, I think Peter Brown had also, uh, you know, indicated there's a very strong requirement for this in the EU. Yeah. I think that is that is something on a global basis is going to be increasingly important. Yeah, I think... This issue was linked with stuff on um, semantic reconciliation services as well. And there, there's a number of uh, groups that are looking at, you know, how that kind of functionality could happen. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Sumo after being exposed to it in the last year. And, you know, I'm just uh, more and more a fan of the work. Thank you all for allowing me to present this. I was uh, very, very uh, happy to be able to do this. It's, it's nice to be able to, uh, to uh, get out and present something that's not directly uh, tied to uh, Adobe revenue or product. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. So uh, maybe uh, we, since we're uh, here, let me make sure uh, we got everyone. Did, did someone join us? after we sort of took the roll call. Peter? Yeah. Hi, it's Mark. Tim Matthews from LMI was on the call for about an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> okay, we're not taking time. Uh, can I have your, your name again? Was t this is Mark. It was Tim Matthews. Oh, Tim, Tim Matthews. Right. Okay. And where, where are you from again? He's uh, from LMI. 
LMI. Okay, great. Fantastic. Did, did we finally get maybe Nicholas, David, or Ed onto the call? No? Okay. Uh, does anybody have uh, any question for Dwayne or for uh, other uh, attendees uh, on the phone now? This is Brown again in Brussels. Uh, just before we started the discussion, there was a question about possible um, involvement for this forum in some of the project work we're doing here in Europe. I don't know if this is the moment to discuss that or whether we want to take that at some other occasion offline or at a future meeting. As good as any other moment since uh, Dwayne was the first person who introduced you to the group and had forwarded your uh, your abstract over uh, Dwayne. But uh, shall we uh, talk a little bit about it here? I, I think it would be a great opportunity because I, I think um, you know, based on what I've I've talked to Peter about in the past and uh, what I believe his vision is, I think there's a, a very strong tie-in to this forum, and uh, I, we could probably end up uh, providing some value. That's wonderful. Go ahead, Peter. Well, uh, off the top of my head, I mean the the issues that we're facing at the moment, uh, and I was discussing with some of the contractors. Uh, today and yesterday about the outline for this project. And the scenario is the following. We are trying to provide some sort of high-level semantic navigation to what is a very complex information territory uh, with some 5,000 websites containing upwards of 5 million uh, static pages of information about various areas of European Union policy in 20 languages and the, the project we're trying to develop is to find a, or build a sort of knowledge management life cycle whereby users in the sense of people who are information creators are able to somehow uh, flag up or tag their content in such a way that uh, it can provide hooks to some sort of um, semantic engine to bring that content to the to the notice of some higher level uh, topic map or other semantic uh, navigation tool, where at a second layer, um, documentalists, librarians, uh, specialists are able to maintain or add uh, value lists, um, metadata type, well not necessarily types, metadata elements keywords and whatever to an existing ontology as and when the need arises. And a third part where you have some sort of ontology management where there is an overview of the ontology, the need to extend that with new uh, classes of information, new association types as the uh, information space becomes bigger. And we have, for the sort of semantic layer, we have an option between RDF, OWL, and, and topic map as, as a topic map standard as a technologies to use. We have the reality of URL accessible uh, information sources on some 5,000 different websites. And we have tools to possibly uh, add metadata, 
manually or semi-automatically to that content to make it available through various transformations uh, and make available to this semantic layer. It seems to me the element that we're all missing is some sort of inference mechanism that is able to detect patterns of keywords or topics that uh, figure in the reference ontology within specific instances of information. Like, for example, you have a document, which is a press release announcing uh, George Bush's visit to the European Commission next Tuesday, that instead of the editor or uh, content provider manually adding information, which would then provide the hooks to be able to be linked to the upper semantic layer, that there should be some sort of inference engine that would be able to recognize certain keywords in the text, recognize that there are associations between them in relation to the, ontology, uh, the reference ontology, and do that tagging and markup automatically in order to make that content available to the semantic layer. So I think in terms of the problematic and the issue of ontology management and of uh, uh, possible inference mechanisms, that's for us at the moment the missing link in terms of the overall uh, consortium that we're putting together to, to, to drive this project. So, so it looks like it's more than an ontology that, that is needed, but also some, some way of like natural language process. Exactly. That helps to build that. Uh, is Adam still on the line? Yeah, and if <laughs> you're doing work in you know, LP, right? It sounds like you've mentioned really two uh, very significant and distinct technologies. I mean, one is natural language understanding with the goal of doing automatic or semi-automatic markup of text and converting some of the semantics of that text into formal semantics in logic and, and in terms of an ontology. And then there's also a second thing, which is logical inference. So once you've actually done that interpretation, uh, doing some computation with the formal results to determine whether it's significant and how it may link to or impact other information that you already know. Correct. Now, yeah. Yeah, in fact, I mean, I, there, there are some technologies that you and I could talk about that are already available that will do that sort, both of those sorts of things, although probably not yet to the level of fidelity and maturity that you'll ultimately be looking for, but at least that could give you a start. Well, the, the important thing to remember or, or, or to, to raise about this project is that it's actually a project which is a research and development project. In other words, it's getting funding from the R&D uh, budget of the European Union. And in that context, we're precisely looking, well, we're precisely not looking for mature technologies. We're looking rather for partners who want to uh, sharing a, a, a common project where there is a research goal, which may be the production or the, the, the finalization of, of some tools or ideas for developing sort of NLP uh, input into this, pro, into this uh, overall uh, goal. I mean, the, the object of the project is not to deliver a, a final working uh, website or solution that provides a sort of semantic navigation system for the whole of the EU information space. It's rather to look at the technologies that exist, the standards that exist, 
the processes and methodologies that might be needed and look at the gap in the market in terms of uh, potential technology developments. And what we're missing is, is apart from the, 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 this issue of the NLP or the uh, content recognition and inference aspect being the one part of the overall infrastructure that we're missing at the moment, um, we're also looking for potential partners, potentially from uh, either R&D departments of companies or from uh, university or research sector must be said preferably EU-based or with some sort of uh, subsidiary in, in the EU for, for various uh, um, obvious reasons in terms of funding. Um, so, I mean, indeed, if there are, there are possibilities or ideas around that, that would be very helpful. The, the second thing to mention is that the way the project will run is there will be three types of participation, and this is a sort of standard model used for these R&D projects. There are full members of the consortium who are the member companies, organizations, institutes, or whatever that are going to carry the work of the project and participate on a 50-50 basis of their own funding and counterpart funding from the EU research budget. The second level is purely contractual, where somebody will come on board to deliver a part of a solution, a part of the uh, overall engine, but according to the specifications drawn up by the consortium and inevitably not be involved then in the actual definition and direction of the project. And the third part, which actually might be of interest in this forum, is what we call the expert input, where you have a reference group of people who are not piloting the project or responsible for it, but who are uh, referred to or lent on at different, aspect, at different moments in the project lifecycle to give advice or direction to deal with particular issues or problems. And given the fact that there is this weakness at the moment in the consortium on NLP or inference work, uh, it seems that that might be uh, you know, a potential input. Um, nothing for life is nothing. Life is free, and the, 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 you know, there are various contractual terms whereby, whether for the contractors or for the experts, um, there is a sort of day rate uh, system in place for uh, for, for, for for paid uh, advice and participation. So that's a bit of sort of background in the context. May, may, I, may I ask, uh, you say there's a weakness on the uh, NLP side. I mean, there's no shortage of groups, academic and industrial, that are doing the kind of knowledge extraction that you um, you say is needed for tagging documents. Um, I, yeah, I think have, you, have you advertised this project? I'm sure if you did, well, you'd find hundreds of uh, people uh, volunteering their service. Yeah, well, the irony is that, of course, the, the more people that know about the fact that there's a source of funding for these sort of things, the more project proposals will go in and less money around for everybody else. So it's, a, it's one of those sort of self-balancing uh, situations where you know people don't want to advertise it too far. That said, I mean, we are in an awkward spot because we do clearly need some input on this this area. I mean, we've got a couple of people, look, a couple of Spanish companies who are going to provide stuff on data extraction and data warehousing uh, technologies and whatever, but well, well, you only the have extraction to is one thing. But, sorry? Yeah, yeah. You, you only have to look through the, the list of participants in conferences like Message Understanding Conference, Name Density Recognition, Texas Ambiguation. I know um, Ed Hovey's group in Cali ISI in California um, had participated with a number of other academic groups to do precisely what you're talking about, uh, tagging information in text. 
uh, with exactly the same goal. And, and he's not a single group, but rather has collaborated with a number of others. So there's, there's no shortage of people that, that are doing that. Uh, no, I could well believe that. I mean, the problem for us has been within a short time frame to actually to reach out to the right communities, if you're the communities of interest, if you like, to uh, and the ones you mentioned there. I mean, the well, yeah, I would suggest you contact Hovey, uh, Edward Hovey at ISI. Uh, he can, he'll certainly uh, suggest himself, uh, I imagine, if he has time, and could, could give you references to other people who are doing similar stuff. <coughs> this is this is Adam again. Could could I get your contact information so we could maybe talk a little more offline? Yeah, I mean, I've just updated the wiki page on this uh, conference thing where my name's appeared. So I've got, um, there's a link now up there to my website, and on there you've got contact information. Okay. Dwayne also sent Peter Brown's uh, original abstract, and it's posted on the Ontolog forum. So, so people might want to comment on that. And I, uh, while you're here, can, can we invite you to be part of the community? And if you say yes, I'll add you to the uh, mailing list, and then we can start corresponding uh, on on the forum. I, mean, I like saying I like saying yes to lots of things. I mean, I, I, <laughs> the only question is, what are the obligation? What are the membership obligations, and what are the initiation rituals? I involved there, there isn't any. I mean, uh, I guess this is this is uh, what communities of practice is all about. I mean, they are informal uh, organizations. Uh, that's why uh, it, it, it provides an environment whereby people can get to know one another, people who share the same passions, uh, just uh, try to uh, get together a little bit, and when opportunity arises, such as, let's say, your your project, then uh, temporary hierarchies can be formed to quickly uh, leverage on the capability as well as the rapport of community members that have already been built out over over a longer stretch of time. No, that sounds, I mean, I think you've sold me on it. I mean, maybe your comment was a bit facetious. It's just um, trying to manage quite a large number of uh, mailing list subscriptions and forums or whatever. It's kind of I, I scary, but it sounds very... Okay. Okay. One more question. Do you have, is, can you provide like a number in terms of euros uh, in which this project will be funded, at least the, the elements that are, that are involved in um, information extraction and tagging text? I mean, it's difficult to put an absolute figure on it, but I mean, we're looking at I mean, the sort of scale of budget available for this sort of project. We're talking of somewhere between 1.5 and 3 million euros. For the, for the overall project. Over what period of time? Over an 18-month to two-year period, probably starting first quarter 2006. Thank you. Yeah. Just uh, a general point, which is, uh, I mean, maybe that's already uh, been mentioned when, when Dwayne passed on the, the abstract of this project. Um, my association with the pro project is a well, I wouldn't say delicate, it's just that as a public civil servant, I'm not supposed to get involved in commercial projects and whatever. And I've told them that I'm uh, offering advice and input in, in good faith as a sort of external independent expert or advisor, uh, but I'm not formally associated with the uh, consortium. You know, I'm not going to be uh, putting money in or taking any money out of it. Um, 
and also the abstract as it stands at the moment is copied to you on a, on a uh, on the basis of an NDA that says that you know this 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 really is work in progress. It's a draft abstract and it's it's not full wide wide scale distribution. I mean within a uh, a form of a community of practice like Ontolog, that I have no problem with that. Uh, but I just think I just hope that members would respect that you know that's that's not full wide scale distribution at this stage. Oh, then I I I, I should. Uh, definitely uh, mentioned that actually Ontolog Forum is uh, is open to access by anyone on on the web. Uh, and as such, I mean, just be cautious that I mean, of course, I mean, we have a, I mean, not everybody in the world wants to learn about ontologies. I mean, it's as such. I mean, the circulation is small, but no, nonetheless. Uh, the information is exposed once it is contributed into, let's say, a, a forum archive or onto our wiki or anything, because none of these things are password protected. Okay. So I just wanted to, to make sure you, you know know about it. I've got a possible question. I'm curious if Steve Newcomb's uh, EP 2010 roadmap on knowledge management uh, plays any role in the um, thinking that's gone on in knowledge management life cycles? I, I didn't quite understand the question. The EU commissioned a Salzburg group with Stephen Newcomb yeah. uh, to look at knowledge management uh, with a 10-year time horizon. And they came up with a fairly extensive examination of how knowledge management is evolving and topic map terms and more uh, broadly ontology terms. They have a roadmap for research and practice and the missing links, the bridges that need to be built on this road going to the year 2010. I was curious if that document is part of the EU planning framework, or whether it's not. You mean part of the planning framework of this particular project, or in general? In this particular project. No, I, I, I'm, I mean, I'm aware of Steve, Steve Newcomb's and Coolhead's uh, work and topic maps, but, but I wasn't aware of, of this particular document, no. But that, from, what, from your description, it sounds like it would be very useful as a sort of supporting supporting document for the rationale for the project, showing that it actually contributes to such a roadmap, yeah. Yeah, I'll post this on um, the wiki or send you the URL. That would be, that would be great. It does mention uh, Edward Hobby and the state of uh, natural, language <coughs> natural language processing in the bibliography. <laughs> Uh, okay. That's very helpful. Uh, yeah. Actually, among other things, of course, we are eventualizing the, the use of uh, ontological engineering uh, methodologies and semantic technologies and so on. But more, more than that, we also have been advocating uh, the, the organizing initiatives uh, into communities of practice so that people can casually get around 
search the problems and, and address them. Uh, so th this might also be another thing you could consider. Actually, uh, among uh, one of the uh, papers we submitted to, let's say, the National Health Information Network, uh, RFI, uh, and, uh, was, I mean, among other things, I mean, the suggestion that they build the, the National Health infra Information Infrastructure by building out communities of practice by using like open technologies, uh, open contents, open knowledge, and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, I think I'm new to the new to the forum. I think I mean even just looking through the wiki now, I can see there's a a whole host of references and and material which it may be useful to point our project theme towards. And I thank you for those. Uh, I have one more question. Um, as to uh, related to the question you had about trying to find a ontology that can serve to organize all, all the information within a consistent um, logical framework, uh, what you're describing, of course, is an upper ontology, what we what like to call an upper ontology. Yeah. Um, but there are uh, several mechanisms to uh, develop an upper ontology, and it depends on, on whether you have money to do so, and if you don't, whether you can just choose one and impose a decision upon the community. Uh, gathered, I gather that you probably don't have money to actually develop one. Nobody seems to, regardless of how important it is. But um, that leaves the question of whether you think you can just choose one and impose it upon the entire community. That's what I'm curious about. I, my my take on this so far, and, and obviously we're in very early stages of the, the pro, pro project description and outline, is that it's going to be an iterative process where we may have to manually, using sort of blackboard approach, uh, sketch out a first uh, top level or upper level ontology that is going to adequately describe at least the um, object classes that we want to describe, uh, that we want to, to cover our information map and information territory, and that thereafter it will be an iterative process of checking that and building that into more and more granularity in function of our ability to process actual content and extract meaningful metadata associations and relationships between that content um, using this sort of uh, knowledge and information management life cycle. Um, I, I don't think there is a existing ontology which adequately meets our needs at this stage that we can just take off the shelf. And it is scoped as part of the work of the research project to do the work on building that initial ontology. So in that sense, yes, there is money available. Um, and I think in that sense, the research institutes that we've already got on board for uh, working with this, including Defence at uh, Karlsruhe University, um, will be to co-fund some of the the work on developing that initial ontology. But who? who, who a guy called Defence. I think it's University of Karlsruhe. Yeah. And he's done. Okay. He's done this book. He's done a couple of books, I think, on. Um, Ontology and electronic commerce, and ontology and uh, ontologies and uh, semantic. Well, yeah, yes, he has one point of view. Um, there are others. 
Yeah, Peter, I, I agree that, that we might have some opportunity to talk together about what this uh, new ontology development work might cover, because what I find is that people invariably reinvent the wheel simply because they don't know the full details of the existing ontologies that are available. And this could well be another case of that. No, I think there's a tremendous amount of content that's available and it would be really surprising, in fact, if, if for new con any new topic that there w wouldn't be a, a vast amount of reusable content from what's already available in Sumo. No, that's very useful to know that. And I think you're right. I mean, it's not today that we're going to be able to go through the details on that, but um, some further discussion exchanges on that, online, offline, that would be very helpful. Yeah, even just point point me to, you know, a few terms that people think they need to create from scratch, and I can probably show how there's content there that can be reused so that isn't necessary. Okay, I mean, I, I think there are actually a couple of, um, whether it's um, form, uh, usage requirements or initial feasibility study documents that have been done, not in the context of this project, but which are being used as input for the project, um, which may point or give you some idea of the sort of information space that we're trying to describe and, and sort of object classes and everything that we're, that we're looking at. So, yeah, I'm more than happy to, 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 to exchange that with people. Um, question really to Peter. I if you say I'm, you, you subscribe me to the community, the, the, there's an opportunity for doing postings then to, to some sort of mailing list, is there, I suppose? Right, exactly. Yes. Okay. Oh, uh, okay, we're about running out of time, and we should take the opportunity to thank Dwayne once again for uh, his presentation and for conducting such a, uh, an interesting discussion. Uh, the session has been recorded and in probably the next few hours I will post more details and those who would like to revisit that uh, will will be able to and this is another contribution uh, we as a community can uh, is providing I guess to, to the industry at large. Well, once again, thank you very much, Dwayne. Any last words? You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Dwayne. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.